Amen. Thank you, guys. Um, and you can be seated. Well, good morning. It's good to hear from this 11 o'clock crowd. It's good to see you. Virtual crowd, we'd like to welcome you also. Thankful that you have the opportunity um, to tune in in the way that you are. Welcome, Miss Lynn. How are you this morning? Good. Good. I'm pretty good. Pretty good. Ought to be good at this by now. Right, Joseph, this point of the day? Should be. Yeah, you'd think. All righty. So if, if you have a Bible this morning, we'll be in Exodus chapter 19. Exodus chapter 19. And Lord willing, we will journey through this whole chapter today. And I want to kind of give you a little bit of, of a roadmap for this morning um, that should be helpful for all of us. My plan is for us to deal with verses 1 through 11 first. And um, in those verses, we'll see that, that the Lord is, in a sense, reestablishing His covenant with His people. And so He gives us the realities of the covenant, and He gives us the term of the covenant, and He also gives them the mission of the covenant, and he also shows us one thing that is required um, in order for this covenant to be successful. And so, in verse 12, it takes a pretty significant turn, and 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 we will also because you have to at, at that point ask the question: Well, why is it? that the Lord's covenant is the way that it is. Why is the term of His covenant the way that it is? And then the last part of this chapter, we will, um, and, and I want you to fasten your seatbelts for this, okay? Um, we are going to see um, if the Lord allows His holiness. And, and so I, I may say some things that you've never heard. I, I, we may read some things today in Exodus 19 that you have never read. You, there, there's a chance that you may have thoughts about the Lord that you've never had before. And, and, and so I want you to jot down questions that you have. Not that I can answer them, but we can at least talk through them and we can try to find answers if, if, if there are answers to be found. Um, but we're going to see the Lord in light of who He actually is. And, and so chapter 19, in my opinion, is probably one of the most important chapters of the Bible. Uh, it is certainly the heart of Exodus, which you, you all know that's a strong statement based on where we've been in Exodus already and what we've seen in Exodus already. But here in chapter 19, um, we get a glimpse of the nature of God and particularly His holiness that helps us understand so much more about not only ourselves, but about the salvation that we hold in, in Jesus Christ. And so... I'm going to read to you 19, 1 through 11. We'll stop, deal with that, and then I'll pick up and read the rest of this chapter in just a few minutes. So let me pray for us. And so, Lord, thank you for another opportunity to gather this morning in your name. Um, Lord, I, uh, even though it's the third time today that I've done this, I, I still feel the same. I'm not in, and so I stand before these people today with, with fear. And, and trembling because of what I see of you in Exodus 19. And, and so I, I believe that you are as holy as your word says that you are. And, and so, Father, I, I know that I need help understanding this more. I know that the people that can hear my voice need help understanding this more. And so we ask for your help. Help us to see you for who you are and who your word proclaims you to be. And even though that can be frightening, oh, Lord, it doesn't take long um, um, for, for that pressure to be released as we see the measures that you have gone in order to bridge the gap between a woefully sinful people and a God as holy as you are. Um, but we have to see you for who you are, and we have to see ourselves for who we are first. And so, God, open our eyes and our ears to the truth 
that's found in Exodus 19. And our hope this morning, as every morning, is that you alone are glorified. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so let's read chapter 19, starting in verse 1. We'll go through verse 11. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain. While Moses went up to God, sorry, while Moses went up to God, period, the Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Verse 7. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments and be ready. If you underline or highlight that phrase, it's mentioned twice in chapter 19. Be ready. It's very important. And be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Now, the first thing to point out is that chapter 19 is the fulfillment of a promise that was made back in chapter 3. If you remember when the Lord uh, met with Moses at this very mountain at Mount Sinai, and he meets him in a burning bush, and, and one of the things that the Lord told Moses that day is that he was going to bring his people out, he was going to draw them out, and they would worship him at this mountain. Well, guess what? Today, here they are. What the Lord said is true. He, he has shown himself faithful and he's brought them to the base of this mountain. And he plans and intends to come and meet with his people at Mount Sinai. But in, in, starting in verse 4, the Lord begins to reestablish his, his covenant. And I want you to look with me in verse 4 because you see four sovereign instances, sovereign, or, or instances of his sovereign grace that show the realities of his covenant. So they're by way of reminder for the people of Israel. He says, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians. That's one of them. The second one. And how I bore you on eagles' wings. And then the third one. And brought you to myself. These three instances of God's grace actually summarize chapters 6 through 19. This is a, just a very brief summary of what the people of God have experienced up until chapter 19. So let's take a little bit closer look at these three um, instances. The first one is this. The Lord says that you have seen what I did. Um, he, he is confirmed not just with words, but with His actions, what He has done for the people of Israel or it should be confirmed in their hearts that they are His people, right? They, they have not saved themselves. 
The boast here is not, people of Israel, you finally got strong enough, you finally got smart enough, you finally found your way out, you dug a tunnel deep enough, you somehow crossed the Red Sea. Like, that's not their testimony, that's not their story. Their story of salvation is what the Lord had done. And so, he reminds them of this reality of what it means to be in, in covenant with him, that he will do what's necessary in order to save you. Friends, this morning, if you're a believer in Jesus and you have, you have come to the Father through the Son, the, the same is true for you. And I don't know if you can see that or grasp that at this point, but I promise you, if the Lord wills, you will get to a point in your life where you look back to your life story from the day that you came to believe until now, and you will go, I mean, the Lord saved me. And there's no credit to give to myself. There's no credit really to give to anyone else other than to what the Lord has has done. So he did what they couldn't in regards to bringing them out. And so he wants them to remember what I have done. I brought you out. And so that's the first reality. The second one, he says, I bore you on eagle's wings. Now, the Bible uses this eagle's wings analogy often. One, one way it uses it is in this imagery of um, the, the young eagles being protected or the baby eagles being protected by the mother's eagle like under the wings. But that's not what's going on here. The, this isn't about protection. This is about, I mean, I would say something even, even greater than protection. It's that the mother has placed the eagles on her back and she's carried them out. And she's lifted them up. And, and, and so this imagery is, is beautiful. And honestly, I couldn't think of a better description based on what we've read in Exodus of how the people of God have been saved. It has been, uh, I feel like a broken record. It has been by His strength. It has been by His grace, His power, His providence, His everything. And so this imagery, it fits perfectly. It's a, it's a very accurate description of the people of God first being brought out Second being lifted up as he bore them on eagle's wings. And then third, we see, we see the reason for these two things. The first two. I brought you to myself. The Israelites were not just rescued from Egypt to be free. That's not why they were saved. You, you and I aren't saved just to be free. Like as good as that is, he didn't just rescue them so they were no longer oppressed and they were no longer enslaved. He rescued them to draw them to himself. And so they were saved to be with God. That's why he saved them. These are the realities of the covenant of God with his people. Now, I, I want to say these three to you again because they're worth repeating. They're worth remembering. They're worth jotting down. They're worth thanking God. Like as you spend time with him in prayer, they, these are worth reminding each other. These realities of what it means to be in covenant with God. And it's that he brings us out. He lifts us up. And he draws us near. And so the story of our salvation and their salvation is he brought us out, he lifts us up, and he alone draws us near. Then in verse 5, it takes a little bit of a turn because he gives a condition for this covenant. He says, now therefore, if you will, if, right, the condition, if, you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant... You shall be these things. Now, I, I want to pause there because um, I, I think this needs a little bit of, of work. Based on, it says, now, therefore. So that therefore points us back to what he's just said. So because he brought us out, because he's lifted us up, because he's drawn us near now, because of those things, those are the basis for them. This is what I expect from you today. Okay? So based on what the Lord's done, 
in the past, there's an expectation for how we are to respond in the future. Again, a point of clarity. The, the covenant that they are in with God, that we are in with God, but let's stick to Exodus 19. The covenant that they are in with God is a unilateral covenant. It's not a bilateral covenant. A bilateral covenant means there are two parties that have equal weight, and if one party does not come through, then the contract is null and void. There's a breach. But in a unilateral covenant, there is one party that establishes the covenant, that establishes the terms, and that same party sees that everything is fulfilled and that the covenant is kept. That's the covenant that we're in with the Lord. However, however, there is a term to this covenant, and the Lord gives the term to this covenant. And it's full obedience. Full obedience. It's crystal clear. It's, it's right there in verse 5. If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant. And there's a couple of things that are interesting about this. The first thing that jumped out to me was the fact that the law has not been given. Right? So the people of God right here, they're agreeing to something that they, they don't even know the actual conditions of the law yet. They don't know what the Lord's going to say when they say, hey, we will do everything that the Lord will tell us. And so that, that teaches us and really kind of emphasizes what I've already said to you is that the basis of their obedience to the Lord is, is going to be what he's already done. And so in a sense, it's like, well, it doesn't really matter what he says. If he tells me to go jump off a cliff and, and turn into a pig with wings, then I guess I'm going to go jump off a cliff and I'll be a pig with wings before I hit the ground at some point. Like it requires this level of faith that based on his actions and what he's done in the past, I'm going to follow him. Like I'm going to obey him. And so it is, it is interesting that, that they agree to this covenant, or at least they're part of this covenant before chapter 20, which we'll get into next week before the law is in fact given. So, we also need to realize that this statement is made to people who are already saved. Okay, So, so the order of the Exodus was first God delivered His people from bondage. Then He calls them to obedience. Then He gives them the law. Right, do you see that? So, so this call to obedience is two people who are already saved. If the roles were reversed, if personal obedience had to come first, do you think that would be a game changer? Would it be a game changer for me and you? Absolutely. If personal, and we've, we've, we've been reading about these folks. Right? If personal obedience had to be a prerequisite for the rescue, then nobody would have ever been saved. Nobody would have ever been rescued. And so, as it is, God saved them before He called them to live a certain way. For us, in, in, as New Testament believers, God saves us in Christ before He calls us to live for Christ. There's a huge difference. And, you know, I, I don't want to sound elementary, and I don't want you to think I'm belaboring this point, but to get this order out of whack is to get the gospel out of whack. If we think full obedience is a prerequisite to us being saved, then our approach to the Lord is going to be wrong. Because you can't save yourself. You won't be obedient enough. And so the Lord 
gave the realities of His covenant. The Lord gave the term, which is full obedience. And next, the Lord shows the mission of the covenant in the last part of verse 5 and verse 6. It says, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, here comes the mission, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of, of Israel. So, so the, the first mission of the covenant is that these people, the Israelites, will be God's treasured possession. And there's an, even an emphasis put in here that all that is in the earth is the Lord's. And so there's a sense that everything is the Lord's. But that's only to emphasize that He has chosen this specific people out of all the other people. So what does that mean? Well, in Deuteronomy, it lets us know what it means. He says, the Lord says um, 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 to His people, I did not choose you because you were the most numerous, which we can understand and translate to mean they're not the strongest. They're not the smartest. They're not the most beautiful. They're not the people that have the most potential. Like, so, okay, so well, why did He choose them? He goes on to tell them in Deuteronomy 7, I chose you, are you all ready for this? And you probably know it, because I love you. Like, so the basis of God's choice of Israel is that He has eternally loved Israel. And so He's not up there going, okay, there's all these nations out here now, and um, which one do I want to be mine? Any, many, many, mo, catch a tiger by his toe, if he hollers, make him pay. Y'all surprised I know this whole thing? All right, listen, He's not doing that. So why did He choose Israel? It's because He, he has always loved Israel. He's etern he, he eternally loved Israel. His people, and He desires for them to be His treasured possession. Now, this this word combination or phrase, treasured possession, in in the in the Old Testament, um, is interesting because it's king talk. This is the kind of language that would be used of a king, meaning this was the king's most prized possession, that which the king held most dear to his heart, and that which the king would protect at all cost. And so the prized possession of the Lord, the one that He will protect at all costs, is this group of people. But they are also to be a kingdom of priests. This speaks even more clearly to the mission of the covenant as it relates to other people. He has chosen them to be the way that the nations hear of Him. And, and so in that sense, they serve as, um, as a kingdom of priests by bringing the world around them that doesn't know their God, by bringing them knowledge of God, and not just knowledge of Him, but displaying Him. And, and so in a sense, interceding as a kingdom of priests on behalf of the nations around them. And so God desires His people in this missional way to function as a kingdom of priests. There is so much New Testament application for this that I just don't have time to go into, but I encourage you to do some study on your own. The next thing we see is they will be a holy nation. This also speaks to the mission. And so His people, His prized possession are to be not only a kingdom of priests, but they are to live um, distinctly different than the nations around them. That's what it means to be holy. To be holy means to be set apart. Like it should be clear that these people have a different king. Like these people serve and are a part of another kingdom. Now let's be honest. Y'all with me? Let's be honest. How many of you in here actually believe that the knuckleheads we've been reading about for the last few weeks can be fully obedient? How are they going to be a kingdom of priests? 
I mean, how are they going to do at being a holy nation? The only thing distinct about them up to this point is their ability to grumble and complain in the face of a God who has been extra kind and gracious to them. So what is God to do? Water it down? Change His standard? Change His requirements? Somehow make Himself not holy? Or not as holy that way this, this covenant and, and their part like they can actually keep it? None of us would think anybody that we've read about thus far is going to be able to do this to the nth degree and do it to a, a degree that pleases the Lord. But that does not change God's demand and it does not change God's mission. The Lord knows that they can't do this and he knows that they won't do this and one way we see this clearly is in the in the first 11 verses is by the way of a mediator this covenant required a mediator and so if you maybe you know i mean some of you kids can even know what a mediator is if you don't there should be an easy definition behind me but a mediator is a go-between someone who bridges the gap between two parties. And so just for clarity, in, in, in this place, in, in chapter 19, there is a massive gap between this holy God and His people. And so this gap needs to be filled by a God-appointed mediator, someone who can go in between. And there's two ways that Moses does this. The first way Moses, we've seen him do this already, is that he speaks with God on their behalf. He cries out to God on their behalf. So Moses fulfills the role of this God-appointed mediator by going to the Lord and hearing a message and taking that message back to the people. We see it today. We've seen it prior to this. We've also seen Moses pray and cry out to the Lord on behalf of his people. But we see this in a new way in verse 11, verses 10 and 11, in that now Moses' role as mediator, there's a new task, and that task is to consecrate the people, to get them ready. Because verse 11 says, the Lord is coming. So the Lord is coming down, and because there's this great gap between the Lord and His people, they, they have to be ready. And they have to be ready to meet with Him. And so Moses consecrates them, meaning prepares them to meet with the Lord. And all he can do is wash their garments. He can wash their skin. All he can really execute are these external rituals or external ways to try to help them understand that the Lord is coming and we have to be prepared and we have to be ready. I want to pause here because I paused here in my study and asked this question to myself, what in the world is going on here? Like, is there a side of you that wonders why the people of God should not just be able to just run right up, just run right up into God's arms and jump up in His lap and say, thank you for everything, Daddy. Right? Isn't there a sense of us that we've, I mean, because we've seen He's merciful, we, we, we've seen He's kind, we've seen He's compassionate, we've seen He's hospitable, like, like we've seen all these things. He seems delightful, He seems loving. Shouldn't they just be able to just run right up into His arms? Will you tell me? Because now we pick up in verse 12. And, and I, I want you to try to focus, and, like laser focus here, and listen to the language that's used around the fact that the Lord, that Yahweh is coming down. And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put 
to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. And so Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, be ready. There's our phrase again. Be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. Now, just to bring some clarity around this part, he's talking about the marriage bed. He's talking about sexual relationships. So he's telling the people, hey, part of this preparation is we want you to abstain from having healthy, um, right sexual relationships within marriage because we want you to be prepared. We don't want you to be, um, I'm sorry, to have any distractions. Like the Lord is coming and you don't need distractions. Now, I do find it funny that, um, that it's, it's, it's told that the um, man should not go near the woman and not the other way around. But we shouldn't be surprised by that. Anyway, and so verse 16, some of you will, you'll understand one day. Verse 16, on the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And at the sound of the trumpet, as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. Listen to this, friends. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look, and many of them perish. Also, let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. I want to pause there. What this means is at the foot of this mountain, the one that the Lord is coming down on, everybody's shoulder to shoulder. Nobody's got a foot in front of the other one in regards to righteousness or holiness. And so even the priest of the bunch, the most spiritual of the bunch, like they're shoulder to shoulder. They have to be just as prepared as the worst criminal of the whole crowd. Verse 24, And the Lord said to him, Go down and come up, bringing Aaron with you. But do not let the priest and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. And so Moses went down to the people, and he told them, This is not Santa Claus. Right? I mean, this didn't just run and jump up in your lap kind of figure. The thing is, this isn't a God that many church-going folks has, have ever even considered or heard of or believed in. And what the Lord is making clear here is that for the two parties involved in this covenant, there is a massive distance between them. So much so, if they're not ready for when the Lord comes down the mountain, they die. Did, did you hear that? Like, it's the death penalty. And if you see someone, if, if Seth sees me approach the mountain, then he's supposed to kill me. And not touch me, not even kill me with his bare hands because I'm unclean at that point, but to kill me with a bow and arrow or with rocks. 
If he even sees one of my goats or chickens or bulls or calves get close to the mountain, he's supposed to kill them. Listen, you should be afraid if you're not afraid. The Lord is good, but He's not safe. He is amazingly delightful, but He is also incredibly dangerous. We love to think of Him as our friend, and rightfully so. But sometimes we dare to think of Him as one to be appropriately feared. But what's happening in Exodus 19 is an appropriate fear. The Holy One is coming down. And it's necessary that they grasp how big the chasm is between them and the Lord. And so going back to the term of the covenant, why does it have to be full obedience? Well, what's the answer? Because He's holy. Going back to one necessity of the um, covenant or requirement of the covenant, why must there be a mediator, a God-appointed mediator? Well, the answer is the same. It's, it's because He's holy. And He wants His people, He wants you and I, and He wants His people in Exodus 19 to understand the otherness of God. The separateness of God, the transcendence of God, the holiness of God, so that we know that approaching Him is no trifling matter. It's not. And, and I can't help but think of things in terms of being a dad. And so I get nervous, like, from probably about four of my bottom four kids, I still would get nervous if they came in your house right now because you don't have young kids and you have China and you have electronics and hey, you better hide the electronics. Put them on the, I'm, cords and all, chargers, the block, everything. They can be destroyed, trust me. And so you, like I would be a nervous wreck if I brought my youngest children into your house because what do kids do? Kids want to touch things. You take them to the grocery store and they just want to see, oh, I wonder what happened if I knocked this bottle of dressing over. Well, guess what? All 50 thousand of them are going to fall over at the same time into the aisle. Like, kids just want to be a part of things. So can you imagine? Look, this isn't a military that we're dealing with here. These are families. And the Lord is coming down. And so they had to make sure that everybody in the whole covenant community understood what it meant for the Holy One to come down. So how, how did these conversations go? Hey, Mommy, Daddy, I want to go play over by the mountain. No. Why? Well, the Lord's coming. And He's holy. I'm not trying to scare you, but I want you to know that if you go close to that mountain, the penalty is death. You'll die. I know this is harsh, but the parent would even be required to take care of the child that disobeyed. And then the little Hebrew eyes are about that big around. And if it was one of my kids, they'd probably say, I'll give it a shot. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm joking. But can you imagine what a day of learning this would have been for the whole community? 
from the youngest ones that could walk around and crawl around, you better believe, you better believe that those parents let them know, do not, and they told the older siblings, you're responsible to, do not let them get close to the mountain. The Lord is coming. And He's holy. And we are not. And so we have to come to Him on His terms. And in the way that He prescribes. And if we don't do that, we could die. Question. Does this seem harsh to you? Be honest. I don't want the Sunday School Exodus 19 answer. I mean, if that's your answer, that's great. More power to you. But does this seem harsh? Does it disturb you? Can I be honest? I'm disturbed. As I prepared this this week, like I've taught on the holiness of God. I've read books about the holiness of God. But for whatever reason, as I thought about it, again, about just in, in light of a covenant community, there's families, there's women, there's children, there's men. There, there's all, like all of that. Like it just is disturbing. It's troubling. It just leaves us a little bit uneasy. And that's because we're prone to do something. We are prone to underestimate the holiness of God and underestimate the seriousness of our sin. That's the problem. Like, and this is no small problem. This is no small problem at all because, because if we never begin to understand how holy God is and how sinful we are, so if you can just imagine that, that my arms, I'm not a very big dude, so I don't have a big wingspan, but just pretend this goes eternally to the right, and at the end, there's no end, but eternally to the right, like that's where the Lord is. He's, he's holy and He's way over here. He's otherly. He's separate. And if you go eternally to the left, like that's where we are in regards to our sinfulness. There's that big of a gap between us and Him. Like if we don't begin to try to at least try to wrap our minds around these two plain, they're plain facts of the Bible. That God is holy, and we sing about it, but like this, like 19 shows you what it means for Him to be holy and how that translates to us. He's unapproachable. He's dangerous. He's to be feared. He comes in a thick cloud of smoke with loud blasting trumpets and consumes the mountain with fire. Like that's what it means for Him to be holy. And so His Word has plainly told us that He's this way. And His Word has plainly told us that we are this way. We're far apart. The reason it's a big deal to just diminish God is because it diminishes God. Oh, He's not... Yeah, He's holy, but I mean, He's just, he's just about right here. And we're sinful and we do bad things, but I'm not depraved. I'm just about right here. How big's this gap? It's not very big. But when you understand that He's this holy and we're this sinful, yet He's come down, what a grace. Friends, it's a grace that He has come down, right? It's a grace that He's warned them that He's coming down. He could have showed up and just zapped them all. And listen, been right in that action. 
So he kindly and graciously gives them and he gives us a warning. Like, I'm holy and you are not and here's what it means. And so if we don't begin to grasp His holiness and our sinfulness, we will never, ever fully understand the grace of the gospel. That's what's at stake here. That's what's at stake. Because if you just think God's a little better than you and you don't think of Him as this kind of holy, but more like a watered-down holy, whatever that even means, and you're not completely dead in your trespasses and sins, you just mess up every now and then, you're not going to be amazed by His grace. You're just not. But when you see Him here and you know you're here and you go, He came down. Like the amazing thing about this story, it's not, it's not that we can't go up. That should not amaze you. We're sinners. He's holy. We, we can't go up. That's not amazing. What's amazing is He comes down. Like He, He came near. He came down. The Holy One. We couldn't go up. Ever. We had no way. Another question. I have a series of questions to end with. This one, I want you to be ready for. So that was your prep. Are you ready to meet this God? I'm not asking you to scare you. But I think it's an honest question based on what we've read today. Are you ready to meet Him? Because one day, death will make eye contact with us. And we'll meet Him. And he's just as holy today as he was in Exodus 19 and as he's always been. But this God that we will all meet has been gracious, gracious and kind to tell us what he's like. To tell us, be ready. Be ready to meet me because this is who I am. This is what I'm like. Be warned. He's been gracious to tell us what we're like. What he tells us about ourselves is that there's no way that we can get up the mountain. We can't even get to the base of it, remember? We can't even get on it, much less try to climb up it. We're not capable. We don't have righteousness. We don't have goodness. We don't have strength on our own to ascend the holy hill of God. So we too, like the Israelites, we need, we need a God-appointed mediator. There has to be somebody that God appoints to be the go-between between us and Him. And listen, friends, we have a better mediator than Moses. He's better. He's better. First Timothy. I'm going to try to contain myself. First Timothy 2.5. says this, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. And so we need a mediator, and God gave us a better mediator than Moses, and that is the man Christ Jesus, as Paul says. Jesus has come down as the mediator between sinful mankind and the Holy Father. He's the go-between. 
not only is he a better go-between, he's also better at consecrating his people in preparation to meet with God. All Moses could do was wash their garments. All he could say was, Dylan, wash your face, wash your hands, cut your toenails, cut your fingernails, like be ready because the Lord is coming. But they were all external and they still didn't actually bring you into the presence of the Lord. But Jesus consecrates us in a different way. Because he's not concerned with the externals. He's not. And so, I, I don't know how that lands on you, but he's not concerned with the externals. Jesus is concerned with the heart. And so, the way that he consecrates his people is that he comes in, it's called regeneration or new birth, or it's a heart transplant. He takes out the heart of stone and replaces it with a heart of flesh that's moldable and it's pliable. There's more to his consecration. His blood, his blood does not come close to being just about some sort of external cleansing. His blood cleans our very souls. Guilt and shame and past sin, present sin, future uh, sin, condemnation. It is completely wiped away because of the blood of Jesus. He's a better, he's a better mediator. He's a better mediator. And, and you know the term of the covenant of God is still perfect obedience. It's still perfect obedience. And so Jesus, Jesus blazed a path of perfect obedience right up to Calvary. Perfect. So God did not lower his standard. Grace does not mean that God is less holy. And when you look at the cross of Christ, what you actually see is what it looks like for the wrath of this holy God to be poured out onto a sinner. But the thing is, is our mediator and, and our go-between and the one who's come to consecrate us was sinless, yet he took the punishment because he was the only one that was worthy to trek up the holy hill of Calvary. Jesus, Jesus, and only Jesus made a way for sinners to approach the God of Exodus 19. He's the only way. He's the only mediator. He's, he's literally, like, he's, he's it. And so I want to close with Hebrews 12. In, in Hebrews 12, and you may remember this, from our journey through Hebrews. I'm assuming y'all remember sermons. Those of you that are awake do. In, in Hebrews 12, beginning in verse 18, the author, he, he's remembering Exodus 19. That, like, like that's what this is about. He's remembering Exodus 19. So listen to this commentary. Now, now he wasn't there, but as this story's been passed down, He's remembering Exodus 19. He says, For you, these believers, he says, For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a temptest. Now, all these words are descriptive of Exodus 19. So, fire, darkness, gloom, a temptest, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg no further messages be spoken to them. Verse 20, For they could not endure the order 
that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Listen to this. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. So even the God-appointed mediator says, oh, I'm terrified. Friends, there is a conjunction in verse 22. And this conjunction conjoins Sinai with a new mountain, a different mountain. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. In verse 24, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. All that is terrifying about Sinai is replaced with the sweet realities of Mount Zion. The first few verses, terrifying. Starting in verse 22, it's contrasted with Zion. Well, what's the difference? Well, look at verse 24. Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. Friends, if you're a Christian today, you have not, and you will not come to the experience of Mount Sinai. That's good news. I don't know if you hear me. I don't know how this is. If I'm, I don't know who's. I don't know how this falls. But look, that's really, really, really good news. That if you are a believer today, you will not, and you have not come to Mount Sinai. Did God change? No. He satisfied the demands of His holiness, and He did that through Jesus Christ. So, same God, different mountains. And the difference is Jesus. So the response, look at verse 25. You can come on up, Joseph. Verse 25 says, See that you do not refuse Him who is speaking. Y'all, it couldn't be more plain. The author is going, Reader, Hey, reader, 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 don't refuse him who's speaking. Listen to what he goes on to say. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. So he's saying, like, just like they would have never escaped in Exodus 19 because they were warned on earth, don't think for one second, don't think for one second that you will escape when you stand before this holy God if you have not come to him through the only way that he's made to come to him, and that is Jesus Christ. And so this is a warning. This is a, a proclamation. Like even today, like right now, for every single one of us, if you have not trusted Jesus, you have been warned of what He's like and what you're like. But you've also been told plainly the way to this holy God. And it's through His Son. So I, I, I beg you to respond in faith if you never have. But there's another response. Verse 28, and I'm done. And I'm done. Therefore... 
Because of all this, therefore, let us be what? Grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Shinai, oh, Shinai. Sinai was shaken, trembled. From the people to the mountains, trembled. Zion was steady. It was a steady, it's a kingdom that cannot be shaken. So be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God acceptable what? Worship with reverence and awe. Listen, he hasn't changed. He hasn't changed for our God is a consuming fire. Let's pray.